Good morning, everybody. Welcome to NUFC Matters with me, Steve Wraith. It is the show with Ben Jacobs. Ben is running slightly late, so what I'll do is I'll start with the ads and then we'll get into the show. A big thanks to all our sponsors. First off, Skips and Bins, telephone 0800 2545 2523. Email inquiries at skipsandbins.com. Website Easy contract free and pay as you go waste collection. Thanks to Garden of Healing Dispensary, CBD hemp and cannabinoid specialists. You can find them at thegohd.com. And thanks to Mr. Vicky's Sources. They are handmade in Cumbria. And you can find more information out on their website, mrvickys.co.uk. And if you want to order any, email info at mrvickys.co.uk or telephone 01768 210102. Big thanks to Blowhole Brewery, a new beer uh, made on Tyneside. The cans are all designed in the colours of Newcastle United strips from days gone by. Black and white there, the purple and blue, and the good old-fashioned blue from the entertainer's days. I will get more information on the Blowhole Brewery range, such as Geordie Juice from blowholebrewery.co.uk. Thanks to Media Arts for all the help with the technical side of things and video side of things. And thanks to qtechshop.co.uk, the makers of pool tables and snooker tables in Walls and Newcastle, and the guys who do our website nufcmatters.com If you want to subscribe to the show then all you need to do is click the subscribe button below. You can also hit the thumb up which does us a favour by liking the video and click share to share to your social media such as Twitter and Facebook. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and Spotify and the rest and if you want to contribute to the show use the QR code it takes you straight to the membership pack and you can join the channel. What do you get? For your membership pack, you get a scarf, a cup, a pen, and a membership card, and entry into the monthly draw. You can also make a donation by hitting the dollar sign in the chat tonight. We also give you something for free if you subscribe to the show. To get your car sticker, email john at nufcmatters.com, and he will post you one out. We also support the food bank on this show, and if you want to make a virtual donation to the food bank, then go to nufcfansfoodbank.co.uk make a donation today on our website we've got lots of t-shirts cups pens you name it memorabilia if you want to buy it and support the show for christmas we have the bruno christmas jumper which is selling rather well and we'll have the bobble hats play like almiron bruno's magic and bruno's 39 and joe linton's j7 get yourself to nufcmatters.com to buy them today if you want to buy people a ticket for one of our events next year We've got an evening with Steve Howie, which is Friday the 24th of February at the Tyneside Irish Centre. Tickets are £50 from nufcmatters.com or newcastlelegends.com. And you can also buy them on Woucher before Christmas. Get somebody a bargain and a nice Christmas present. Peter Beardsley is on on the 10th of February at St. Dom's Catholic Club in Newcastle. Tickets available direct from the venue. And for this one, Friday the 2nd of June... Next year at the Grand Hotel in Gosforth, 6.30 start. An evening with Rob Lee, Lee Clark and John Beresford. To book tickets, contact Natalie at heelandtour 
healandtour.org.uk or visit their website, healandtour.org.uk forward slash events. If you're looking for a Christmas present and people like a book, then get yourself NME from the Bender Squad to the Gremlins or the last remaining copies of Black or White, No Grey Areas, Lee Clark's autobiography. And you can get them from www.badboysbooks.net. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Well, I'm happy. You'll be happy because Newcastle and Leicester both into the quarterfinals of the Carabao Cup. Yeah, fantastic. And Leicester looked very sharp last night. And Newcastle, I think, continue to prove that this type of tournament is very important to them. The World Cup's obviously influenced a lot of selections. So teams that are in the Carabao Cup are clearly taking their lineups a bit more seriously because it's seen as a very important game ahead of the Premier League resuming and Newcastle's lineup obviously reflected that with a very familiar back four, Miguel Almiron leading the line, Callum Wilson being thrown in after the World Cup, Bruno there as well. And I think they got the job done. That's probably the best way of putting it. They needed an own goal to do so, but they're in the quarterfinals. It was a hard-fought win for Newcastle, certainly from Leicester's perspective. They were more fluid. They were obviously up against lower-ranked opposition as well, but away from home. And whereas perhaps Leicester killed off the game early, Newcastle had to dig deep. But I still think that the win was no more than Eddie Howe's side deserved because Newcastle created the bulk of the chances. And now they have to wait until tomorrow evening to find out whether they've avoided the big one, whether they've avoided Leicester, because otherwise, obviously, Newcastle's cup run will be over. Yeah, that's the big thing, isn't it? We, we and, and, you, and it's funny because with football, Ben, it, you know, when you tend to play a team in the league and there's a cup game around the corner, it's it, how many times that's happened over the years where you end up drawing the same team you've just played in, in the last couple of weeks. It, it happens all the time and the law of averages suggest that might happen. Newcastle could face Leicester, you know, twice in as many weeks. Um, obviously, if we avoid Leicester, because <laughs> um, you're not going to say that Newcastle are going to win the Carabao Cup if we play them. But are Newcastle good enough to win it? I mean, I guess when you get to this stage, you do need a little bit of luck on your side. You do, but the way that the actual teams have fallen and the quarterfinal draw is a consequence, there's a fair chance that Newcastle will get a very kind draw. You look at the teams that played yesterday and jokes aside, if Newcastle draw Leicester, they'll feel that they can win that game. Why wouldn't they? Southampton have gone through. Wolves are not in great form. They beat Gillingham. They've got a new manager. But nonetheless, if you got Wolves home or away, you'd be perfectly happy as well. There's three games taking place tonight too. Blackburn against Nottingham Forest. You're happy with that winner. Charlton against Brighton, exactly the same. I think Newcastle would like to avoid Manchester United, but at home, you take that. And again, we don't really know how seriously Manchester United are going to take the tournament come the quarterfinals. I think once you're in the semis, you're looking at high priority, but a quarterfinal game, you still might see teams chop and change. And then, of course, the two teams that Newcastle would want to avoid is the winner of that Manchester City-Liverpool game. But other than that, there's not all of the big guns left in the tournament. and We still could have a few more casualties. So I think that Newcastle will be happy enough with any kind of draw. And that's the big difference for me, talking a bit broader than just the Caribou Cup. Newcastle at home now will take absolutely anybody and feel they can beat absolutely anybody. And because I genuinely believe that winning a trophy 
is seen as vital. And whether that's an FA Cup, a Carabao Cup, or of course, a Premier League, there's no real pecking order at the moment because they know they're not going to win the Premier League this season. So if you get into a quarterfinal of a Carabao Cup, that excites a fan base because a trophy is a trophy. And it reminds me of Leicester under Martin O'Neill, even though Newcastle are making greater strides and quicker. When O'Neill came into Leicester in the mid to late 90s, suddenly every single year there was something to cling hold of. To begin with, it was fighting off relegation. Then it was a mid-table finish. And Leicester finishing the top half of the Premier League was seen as astonishing. But in that period, they kept getting to League Cup finals and they won it twice. And the one that goes down in memory is actually against Middlesbrough because that was the season Newcastle fans will remember where they had Ravinelli, Juninho, and everybody thought they were going places. And they ended up getting to two cup finals and going down, which I'm sure Newcastle United fans at the time took great glee in. And Leicester drew with them very late at Wembley. And then there was a replay in those days at Hillsborough. And Leicester went on to win that game. And Steve Claridge was influential in helping Leicester get that trophy. And to be there at both games and to see your side win any trophy is phenomenal. And I think Newcastle are still not too big for that, just because they've had a history of challenging for the Premier League, just because they're going places as far as Champions League. The only caveat is, of course, the further you get in the tournament, the more it clashes with Newcastle's push to try and escalate that strategy of Champions League football earlier than perhaps they anticipated. They were probably looking at getting into Europe within three seasons if they could. And now this first season away from the threat of relegation, they're doing so well as we approach the halfway stage that that might influence things like selection. But I get a sense, certainly from the PIF side of the ownership group and talking to people connected to the club and Eddie Howe specifically, that the League Cup is high priority and why shouldn't it be? Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. This is very high priority. I think when we saw the, the starting lineup. Uh, that Newcastle had selected mm. last night. That was a shock to most fans. I mean, I stood in the bar, read it out on the microphone, and people were like, wow, we're, we're going for this competition. And and I think it's the right tactic because we're not too big for our boots. As you said, Newcastle have been a you know perennial relegation struggler um, You know, with, with only one visit to Europe in the last 15 years. So fr- from our perspective, you know, to see that team going out there was, was a big confidence boost. And Although it didn't quite work out as as one would have imagined, primarily because Bournemouth came for a you know uh, uh, I say come for a draw, they came really to get it to penalties. I think they didn't come to win, and uh, you know they were very defensive. They, they thought we can't win this on an attacking front. Let's just mm-hmm. close Newcastle down. You know when when ESM came on, you know they, they, they you know they had two on him. You know they, they, they stifled Almiron, the, the isolated Callum Wilson, and and you know for vast periods of the game, the game was played in midfield. And you've got to credit Bournemouth for for at least that. And Gary O'Neill, he got his tactics spot on. But unfortunately for him, you know the the, the you know the, the pushing forward by Newcastle was relentless, and you know it, it led to that mistake, which led to the goal. I do feel Newcastle's offside goal should have stood. Um, always difficult to tell when you're not in line with the offside decision, of course, and there's no VAR, um, you know, available for, for the Carabao Cup. But you know, from me, from my perspective, this is the competition Newcastle need to focus on. It would be lovely to finish in the top four. I don't think it'll. I don't think it can happen. Um, you know, unless they make some decent signings in January. But I do feel that you know a, a top six, top seven place is doable and getting to the Carabao Cup final. Will they win it? Can they win it? 
it depends who they end up playing. Uh, and that's what I say, you do need a degree of luck. But I think the Carabao Cup is certainly the focus for Eddie Howe and the boys this year. I think the luck comes in getting a home draw, though, as well in that quarter final, because as I said before, Newcastle are always confident at home. And what a baptism of fire for Bournemouth to return from this break to St James's Park in front of a crowd of almost 52,000. And that, again, makes a statement. So I think when you look at a few things here, you can see that Newcastle are taking the tournament seriously. And even historically, they've not done bad. I mean, that's a fourth quarterfinal appearance now since 2014-2015 for Newcastle. So they've actually always, even before the new regime and the momentum, got to the business end of this tournament traditionally over the course of the last 10 years or so. But they haven't got to a final since 1975-1976 when they lost. So... I think changing the history of the club, rewriting what has previously gone on under Steve Bruce, where they didn't invest under 1975, 1976, which is the yardstick at the moment, the last final in the League Cup that they got to. This new ownership group are quite clearly thinking about what they can change and how they can rewrite history and bring that history to the fore. So instead of talking about not winning a trophy for ages, instead of talking about getting beaten in a final, instead of talking about a run to quarterfinals, they become finalists. They become winners. They become a team back in Europe. And not everything's going to happen at once, but key to all of that is how seriously you take the League Cup. And that's not just in Eddie Howe's responsibility, it's for the fans as well. And I bet you anything, a game against Bournemouth two, three years ago when Newcastle were floundering, nobody liked Steve Bruce, nobody liked Mike Ashley, there'd have been nowhere near 51,579 people in St. James's Park for a midweek game right before Christmas at St. James's Park. It's not the business end of the tournament. In that round, I think you can only really start saying that when you get to a quarterfinal. So all credit to the Newcastle fans and all credit to Eddie Howe for a strong selection. And I think with that selection, we won't really know whether that's because he's only taking the Carabao Cup seriously or because you need to give the players game time to sort of shake off the rust and regain the momentum ahead of the Premier League resuming. And I do think it's a bit of the latter and that is very sensible. And that skewed these Carabao Cup games, which I think is why they've been dumped straight after the World Cup, because the organisers would have preempted that the bigger teams would have had to reintegrate their World Cup players, at least those that ended up leaving a little bit earlier. So Callum Wilson probably wouldn't have been remotely involved or even on the bench if England had gone any further, because had they beaten France, they'd have had to stay until the end of the tournament playing either in the final or the third place game. But by England going out against France, you come home a week early, Wilson ends up being in the starting lineup. And I think that that is just very smart. And the Newcastle lineup, extremely familiar, especially, as I say, the back four. I think Bruno is always going to pick himself at the moment too. And Willock in the side, who's had a great first half of the season too. And then we know all about that front line as well. So it's about as strong as you perhaps would expect. I certainly don't see too many changes ahead of the Premier League resuming. And now the responsibility of Newcastle is to go to Leicester, 
and get something on Boxing Day. So they start by setting the tone in the Premier League. And if they can do that, then there really is no reason why they can't continue to be contenders for either top four or definitely European football because home to Leeds is very winnable. Away at Arsenal is obviously pretty tough, but they've still got in the back of their mind, I think, the superb win at home, albeit towards the back end of last season. And we don't know what Arsenal we're going to get in the second half of the season as well. Gabriel Jesus is injured as well. But I look at Newcastle's season as being a bit more defined by the middle part of January through to the middle part of February. Because if they can keep the momentum going, and by momentum, really what I'm saying, even though it's a bit glib, it's a bit difficult to say this with the Premier League because there's no easy game. But if you look at mid-January through to the middle of February, what you see is games that Newcastle should win. And if they beat Fulham at home, if they beat Crystal Palace away, if they beat West Ham at home, if they beat Bournemouth away, then they enter into late February and March, where the fixtures get a bit more serious in the context of solidifying either that Champions League or European place. Because suddenly, if you've won most of those games or got points in those games, you've protected your cushion. And if you protected your cushion, 18th of February at home to Liverpool, 4th of March away at Manchester City becomes absolutely massive, even the 1st of April against Manchester United. So usually we would suggest that that race to finish fourth. And I don't think Newcastle are going to finish first or second, by the way. So third, fourth, fifth, sixth, it's going to be tight. And usually in that race, we start saying it's always decided in May. So then you look at for Newcastle, home to Arsenal, 6th of May, and away at Chelsea last game of the season as being defining. But really what Newcastle are looking to do, I think, is lay down a marker earlier. So that February, March period when they start playing some of the big teams around them is going to be important. And if they can stock up points in those so-called winnable games, that's when the home advantage, that's when when they're at home against the big sides, they can really look to lay down a marker. And if, for example, 18th of February, they beat Newcastle, uh, they beat Liverpool at home, that's when you start saying, you know what, we can do this. And that's what Leicester did. So it's not just about the end of the season and hanging on. It's about setting the tone a little bit earlier. And when Leicester won the Premier League, that's what they did. Everybody wrote them off towards the second half of the season. They had a horrible run of fixtures. It was a game against Arsenal. They had Danny Simpson sent off and Arsenal came back and got a late winner. And they celebrated like they won the title. Next game, Leicester went to Manchester City and won. And that was the point. I think they realised, you know what? Nobody can just push us over. Nobody's bigger than us in terms of reputation. Nobody's on better form than us. Nobody's got a louder, more boisterous fan base than us. And I think Newcastle need to adopt that mentality, which is why the next few months are obviously going to be so important. Yeah. Um, interesting question from John, as he often gives. Uh, would you be in favour of VAR in the competition? It would clarify decisions. For example, the Wilson goal should have stood. Any reason why it's not used in the League Cup? Good question, John. Yeah, I think it's just logistics, because obviously, unlike the Premier League, the League Cup has no predictability of who's going to play who and what level of club is going to go far. So it's all very well saying at St. James's Park, we can invest in VAR, but it's perhaps a lot harder to do that at a Lincoln or an MK Dons. And if you're going to do it, 
then teams would argue it has to be consistent across the whole tournament. So then you're introducing it in round one. So I think it comes down to cost and logistics. And then, of course, what we get, I'll have to confirm this, actually, but my understanding is that when you get, for example, to the final, VAR will come in because that infrastructure is there. So there's an element of inconsistency. It's always annoyed me a little bit when you see this in tennis as well. Sometimes you get a main court that has Hawkeye and an outside court that doesn't. And again, it usually comes down at that particular tournament to logistics and costs. So it should be there. I think it's a great point. And clearly football will head in that direction. And as the technology advances, it becomes easier. It becomes more cost effective and the logistics are more universal to install. And I think that when it needs paying for, it should ultimately be paid for by everybody. It should be paid for by the organizers. It should inadvertently, indirectly be paid for via the clubs. And you can do that in a number of ways. You can, of course, ask them for money to invest in the tournament, but you can also just shave a little bit off the prize money and then reallocate that and nobody will really notice or say a word. We're under the assumption usually that prize money can go up every season, but if it doesn't, if it freezes, you might be able to generate a bit of budget. So I do think VAR should be there. And I think the other thing is just that fan bases and teams and referees, all of whom get opportunities in these type of tournaments to go to different places to have different experiences. So a referee might get a big game in the League Cup and be hoping to eventually transition into the Premier League. A fan base might get to visit a new stadium and have a historic moment. And in each case, because it's unpredictable due to the lot of the draw and due to the starting volume of games when the tournament first begins, you do get a lot more opportunities, opportunities to travel, opportunities to get big draws, opportunities to ref that you might not normally get. And if under those scenarios, the referee has a bad game and doesn't have VAR and had aspirations to go to the Premier League and has no experience of VAR. If a fan base goes to St. James's Park and causes a massive upset and then the goal gets chalked off and then it turns out that it was actually onside, they're going to be fuming and their moment is ruined as well. So I think we've gone a bit full circle here because we perhaps started with the majority opinion that technology was bad for the game, was slow for the game, was incorrectly applied to the game. And some of that is still fair. But I think now everybody broadly wants a form of technology and we've shifted slightly. We've become more finessed in our complaints, our debates, our arguments. And it's moved from no to technology for some people to let's get the technology right. And that's why I think that most people would like the VAR and any broader technology that comes, like semi-automatic offsides, goal line technology, all there, all introduced, all as black and white as possible. And then, of course, it becomes how is it implemented? How smooth can it be? How soon will we hear communication in real time so we understand what's going on? And how can we ensure that there's not huge delays within the game? And I think that tells you that technology has been the right approach. And now it's just about the implementation. And I'm not that worried if we have a big debate, if we have big outrage, if we have big frustration, if we have big moans at this point about the technology. Because if you jump forwards 10 years, they will find a way of getting it right. I remember with my dad when the back pass rule came into play and 
that generation were so annoyed by it, they couldn't believe it. And every time the ball went back to the goalkeeper in those early days, they'd pick it up because they'd forget or they would lose their ability to time waste. And I think that people forget that. When Leicester used to play, when I was a really, really young kid at Filbert Street, the end of the game was basically just a parade because you could pass it forwards and backwards, forwards and backwards, forwards and backwards to your goalkeeper. And I can't believe that that rule stood for so long. It was infuriating and you never really got as much late drama because you could just see out the game like they do in the NFL, where when they've got enough plays remaining, phases, they just kneel down and that knocks off 30, 40 seconds. In rugby union, you have those scrums that you can just unintentionally, supposedly, even though it clearly is intentional, collapse them or turn them and then you have to reset. And in resetting, it knocks a minute and a half off the clock. So I think that sometimes we have to look at changes to the game, whether they're rule-based or technology-based, after 10 years, maybe. And it might be something that one generation hates and the next generation just loves. And I think now, because we've had VAR integrated for a bit longer, people are warming to the actual technology. They're just not always warming to the implementation of it because it can be slow. It can be inconsistent. But that, for me, will improve over time. Yeah, <clears throat> lots of comments coming in about this. Um, the fact that officials don't have to attempt an explanation for that inexplicable offside is so grubby. Wilson's celebration was tame as uh, he was against his old club. Tom says, uh, why does VAR... Why has it got to be used in cup games? They should just use it in league, league games, which is the other side of the fence. BT says VAR is expected to cost around 1.2 million per season and premiership clubs will pay for the technology with each club's share depending on their final league position. So, uh, interesting. JC also says moving from three VAR refs to one main was a terrible idea, much more open to bias. So, yeah, VAR still causing controversy. Um, as you can see in the chat, there are no reasons why the continent uses VAR efficiently, yet here it's still an issue of sorts. Yeah, I've said that all along as well there. Bizarre. Uh, anyway, onto the festive jumpers that we're wearing. Roger Cook <laughs> wants to know, what is your jumper design? I got given it by the missus, to be honest with you. And when I first got it, I thought it was Gunnosaurus and I nearly didn't put it on because, <laughs> you know, I can wear a Newcastle shirt as a joke and people have given me Chelsea shirts, but... Then to wear an Arsenal one as well, it is too much. I have great respect, by the way, for Arsenal, but I wouldn't be wearing a Gunnosaurus yeah. top. But it's just a dinosaur, from what I gather. He's got a present in his mouth. and um... That's it. And, of course, mine's the Gremlins. Um, there we go. Uh, a good Christmas film. Uh, that, of course, controversy. Uh, Steve, I keep going on about this, says John, but has Ben been converted to the reality that Sven Botman's top class? Ben said more than once that his sources has told him he was suspect. Mm. Oh dear. Great man. He is going from strength to strength, that kid. And I mean, Newcastle's defensive record um, is is brilliant. And I mean, at the, the after-match discussion last night um, with me and my mates was, you know, the difficulty he's going to be finding a replacement for Fabian Shaw when, he, when, you know, eventually he hangs up his boots because those two in tandem play very well together. And with, you know, the flanks, you know, being backed up by Dan Byrne, who... I think most people were scratching their heads when Eddie Howe said, we'll stick him in at left-back and we'll play, you know, Trippy obviously is a shoe in at right-back still. Um, you know, it's quite a formidable defence. And, and and we also chatted about Nick Pope last night. Praise mm -hmm. to Nick Pope. Standing around for 70-odd minutes, cold, 
Um, you know, half asleep probably with the atmosphere because it was quite dull last night, and then suddenly called into action and um, you know, great save. And that's why Newcastle are having such a good season. It's built on strong foundations at the back. But questions about Botman, have you changed your mind? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's built on focus, isn't it? Before we come on to Botman and Pope made two good saves. Jack Stacey forced him into the first one and then Dominic Solanke's late effort as well was really well blocked. So all credit to him. And I have been converted by Botman for sure. What I said before he joined was not that there wasn't this raw potential, more just that it would take a little bit of time to be unlocked because he's quite a modern defender with a lot of raw god-given skills he's hungry and he's talented but there was that feeling from sources and other clubs looking at him that at premier league pace he might get pulled out of position a little bit and the maturity would take some time to develop so i think that the potential was always there but it was a case of how quickly it could be unlocked to get him world class offset against the actual fee that was being asked. And what we found with Botman is he slotted straight in. And I have to hold my hands up in that respect, or I have to go back to those other people that said they thought it would take a bit more time and say that they were wrong. And I think that this is credit making a broader point to Newcastle's recruitment team, because the same was said about Bruno as well, that he would come in very raw, he would come in very hungry, but once again, would need a little bit of time to actually establish game management and showcase all of his skills. And Bruno pretty much got thrown straight in and became a cult hero and continues to put in very consistent performances. Whereas, for example, Joe Linton needed a little bit more time and arguably a managerial change in order to really find that week-in, week-out consistency. And now not only are they automatic starters, but they're the type of players that rarely put worse than a 7 out of 10 performance in. And what I like about Botman is he's bought into the Geordie culture. He's bought into the formation. He's very comfortable in that back four. And this, I think, was a little bit of a talking point, wasn't it, before the season started about who the two centre-backs would be because there were a variety of informed players who could have been slotted in at that point. And the Botman-Share partnership was the one that was picked from the word go, and it's paid off. And I think that they've developed a relationship, they talk, they lead. And the most impressive thing for me about Botman is the fact that now, if you watch him, it's quite difficult sometimes for fans, but geeks like me that are not Newcastle fans, sometimes we will grab a tape of a game or even in real time, and scouts do this, of course, as well, and you start watching players off the ball. And it's harder for a fan because if Newcastle are coming forwards, why would you be turning your head and have your eyes on your two centre-backs? But I've watched a lot of Botman off the ball in terms of anticipating two things. One, is there any opportunity to move forwards a little bit when Newcastle have the ball and be an outlet should they choose to go backwards or be part of the early part of a build-up of an attack? And is he ever calling for that? Is he ever part of that build-up? Is he ever trying to advance when teams are backing off and giving Newcastle the ball to be a real ball-playing centre-back? And then the second thing, which is the most important, 
is what's he doing when Newcastle have the ball in midfield or beyond, but could lose the ball? Where's he positioned? What's he alert to? Who's he looking at? Who's he talking to? Is he gesturing or is he passive? And a lot of younger centre-backs take a bit of time to really get that positional sense. Because if Newcastle are in the final third and you're a centre-back and you've not been told to come forwards, then to some extent you're passive. And Nick Pope, like you said, in Carabao Cup can be exactly the same. So the most impressive thing for me has actually been his focus and his game awareness. And then, of course, when you add the stuff on the ball in terms of the defending, he's strong, he wins aerial duels, he's physical, he's tenacious, but with a kind of calmness at the same time. And that's what I like about all of Newcastle's back four, that they're not rash, they're not sliding in foolishly, they're not getting pulled out of position. There's almost an automatic understanding between all of that back four, certainly Byrne and Trippier in terms of the fullbacks, and then obviously Cher and Botman as the two centre-backs, and Pope's a leader as well. And that makes life easier for, say, Bruno playing in central midfield ahead of them. And I also think in a weird way, it gives, say, a Willock, and I know Joe Linton has actually played in the three in midfield as well, rather than necessarily in a front three. But it gives those kind of players more freedom because they trust the fullbacks to work with them when they get wide. But they also know that that back four can defend when they need to in a far more traditional way. And in modern football, we don't really just talk about a back four anymore. In the olden days, you'd have a 4-4-2 and your back four would defend. And then your four in midfield would play in midfield. And of course, your central midfielders would have to drop back. But there wasn't as much of this two lines of four or two holding midfielders when you're off the ball, dropping in front and offering protection to your back four. And the reason for that was because traditionally, and we have to go back here 20 years to make this point, your trippiers and your burns would not be told to get up and down, up and down as much and overlap as much. So, of course, they wouldn't need as much cover. And I feel like the beauty of this Newcastle back four is... If a Willock wants to get forwards, if a Bruno wants to get forwards and they get caught out, there's a lot of faith in that back four, either getting back if you're Trippier and Burn, or just staying back. And in a really old school way, being able to defend without always needing the protection. And then without the protection, if you do that, it means that, of course, a top side can break away. And if there's no one that has got back there because you've committed numbers forwards, the opposition could have a long-range effort because either Cher or Botman would have to come forwards to block it off, which is risky because then suddenly they can be passed through with more intricate football. So the only risk of that tactic, and Newcastle obviously don't intend to do this tactic, they always want cover, but the point I'm making is that with Botman and Cher, you have that trust that as a four, they can defend if they need to. And the only way you get exposed if you're rigid and focused and communicating in that context is if someone scores a worldie because you're trying to keep your line, you're trying to cover all options, but because perhaps you've overexposed yourself going forwards, somebody might get a pot shot from 25 yards. And if they bury it, you have to just applaud them. That's a wonder goal. So that's the thing I like the most. It's his focus. So I have been converted and he's had enough games now that it's no fluke. It's no purple patch. He clearly stepped up a level and addressed and thrived at some of the weaker areas and Premier League pace 
that certain people within the game thought he might be exposed at. And that might just be because when you have a bit less time to think, the rawness comes out. And because his natural decision-making has always been and still is so strong, maybe it helps him, the fact that the Premier League is taking place at a faster pace. Yep, lots of questions coming in about Madison. David says, Ben, any explanation why Madison returning to the club is delayed? Saw on his social media that he's in Dubai 20 days after England were knocked out of the World Cup. John also asks the same question. Uh, ben, what has been said about Madison's extended break from Leicester end? Very strange, considering that he didn't play a game. Um, and Blue Rhythm Boy says, what's Ben's feeling about whether Madison will sign for Newcastle? Every fan I've spoken to thinks it's a done deal. Certainly don't think it's a done deal. That's the first thing to say. It is a bit strange that James Madison went to Dubai. I agree with that. But you have to bear in mind that you're still training in the England context and pushing yourself to the maximum to try and get in that side. So it's disappointing for Madison he didn't get any game time. But it's not just about he didn't play because that's only a series of games over 90 minutes. He's still in a full training programme, whereas his teammates at Leicester got some time off. So the surprise is that if Callum Wilson returns and plays in the Carabao Cup, then why doesn't James Madison return and play in the Carabao Cup? And the only real difference is that Wilson, thankfully, I suppose Newcastle fans would say, is fully fit. And James Madison has had some injury problems. So maybe the feeling was that just a little bit of time off to collect his thoughts and get some sun and relax a little bit would refresh him ahead of the second half of the season. And Leicester will want to think about the player welfare and give him a bit of time and breathing space because it can backfire if you don't. If you bring James Madison back, you throw him straight in away at Milton Keynes Dons. He's not happy with that. He's still a little bit frustrated. He didn't get any England time. How do you know that's not going to work against you if a club does come calling in January. Whereas if the club give the player an extended break, the player respects that and is glad to refresh his head. And it once again reassesses in his mind that Leicester look after him, that Leicester care for him. It reminds him during that break maybe that all of his form, the very fact he got an England call-up was down to Leicester. And Leicester are going to have to play on that in order to keep James Madison. So I think that's a factor as well and players are human as well sometimes they just need a break and time off and as I said before it's not like just because he didn't play he's ready to go he's been injured and then when he was fit he was training with England 24-7 still so just because he didn't play in the game he's still basically been involved in everything that all of the other England players have and maybe he just needed a break and then in January it's going to be very interesting because whoever comes in for James Madison, knows they're going to have competition. And therefore, if you want James Madison in January, you're doing so either because you feel he's needed now rather than waiting until the summer, or if you're Newcastle United, potentially because you want to put a bigger offer down in order to jump ahead of suitors that either only want to move in the summer or feel that there's only value in the summer. And Newcastle haven't traditionally done that thrown down a ton of money above market value. They've not set that precedent. Probably the only time they've done that is actually for Chris Wood, ironically, when they were desperate for some kind of striker depth. They were fighting off relegation 
and they spent more than Chris Wood was worth. And luckily for them, he's contributed with a goal here and there and bought into the mentality. And as importantly, he's not got annoyed that he's not playing in every game. He is very much, as I understand it, enjoying life at Newcastle being a squad player. And it remains to be seen, therefore, whether in the next window or two, clubs come in for him and he wants a bit more game time. But I think Newcastle will be happy, even though they paid a lot for Chris Wood, because he just scratched an itch at the time that they desperately needed due to their precarious position. With Isaac, it was a lot of money, but obviously different scenario. Young player could easily grow into that price tag. So I don't think Newcastle felt that they were ripped off with that deal either. And obviously other targets, Newcastle have backed off because the valuation was too high. And that includes James Madison, let's not forget. Newcastle valued James Madison at a maximum of around 45, some would say 50 million. Leicester was saying 60 to 65. Newcastle said no chance. And they never came back and did another bid. So now if they want James Madison, and the fact that since Newcastle's interest, Madison's had a phenomenal first half of the season, 60-65, to me anyway, maybe I'm biased as a Leicester fan, but... It seems value. And therefore, Leicester could easily ask, even with the contract situation, playing into suitors' favours, 70, 75 million in January. And they'll do that potentially just to stop him going mid-season because Leicester are moving in the right direction now. They'll hope to make a European push in the second half of the year. They won't want to lose James Madison. And then obviously, if everything goes well at Leicester, they might try and get him to extend his contract either. So it's a bit of chicken and egg at the moment. If Newcastle want Madison in January, and it isn't a done deal, as I understand it, by any stretch of the imagination, they're going to have to pay big. But there is an opportunity. But more likely, Madison will wait until the summer when he knows what he's getting, because there may be Spurs interest. There still may be Newcastle interest. Other clubs can come to the fore. And if James Madison wants to sensibly decide to move away from Leicester and not sign a new deal... And I still think Leicester will try their luck because they clearly don't want to lose him. But if James Madison says, I'm leaving, then what's he leaving for? And that's the key question. Is he leaving for a club that has Champions League football? Is he leaving for a project that he's excited about because he thinks that he can influence it regardless of what they have next season in terms of European football? Is he leaving for money? And this again is where Newcastle are in a very precarious position. It's positive. I know we normally use precarious in a negative sense, but it's a positive precarious position because if they qualify for Champions League football, then they can open up their wage bill. They can compete for players financially in terms of the package they offer at a much higher level. They can spend more money on players. They've got more lure for players. But of course, if they sign a player in January with a view to all of that and it doesn't happen, then they risk rocking the boat. And I would be surprised with James Madison if he agreed to terms that were not with a view to Champions League, that were not with a view to European football, that were not with a view to Newcastle solidifying themselves as a giant. And everything suggests that they're moving in that direction. But the last thing you want to do is rock the wage bill. And again, I come back to what I said before. Newcastle have done extremely well to not pay one or two players insane money and risk causing dressing room unrest. They've done very well not to pay above the odds for almost everyone they've signed. Now, maybe in January, 
they'll be forced to do that because of the positive direction that things are heading and who they desperately want. And when you're in a race with a lot of other suitors that either have or are likely to get Champions League football, that is the challenge. You have to elevate. And elevate doesn't just mean being more ambitious. It means digging deeper into the pockets. So things are going to change. And that is unfortunately the reality of success. It costs you. So the model for Newcastle will be quite incentive driven with the current crop. If they qualify for Champions League, they'll get bonuses. Some of them will get new contracts. But with a new player, they can preempt what's happening. And they can say, pay me that now or I'll wait until the summer. And I'll see whether you actually have what you say you're going to get. And all of this will be running through James Madison's mind. So I think that the situation for me is not a done deal at Newcastle, but we know Eddie Howe likes the player. There are other suitors involved. And we wait and see whether anyone chooses to be ambitious and audacious almost and put down a big offer in January. And if they don't, then I think James Madison will end up considering his future instead in the summer. Okay, um, Ben, hold that thought. Uh, I'm going to have to play the ads again because I've been waiting for a delivery for the family. You know what it's like at Christmas. And uh, the van has turned up. So I'm going to go and uh, go and sort this out. But I'm going to play the ads again. I'll be back in a bit. A big thanks to all our sponsors. First off, Skips and Bins, telephone 0800 25 email inquiries at skipsandbins.com. Website skipsandbins.com, easy contract free and pay-as-you-go waste collection. Thanks to Garden of Healing Dispensary, CBD hemp and cannabinoid specialists. You can find them at thegohd.com. And thanks to Mr. Vicky's Sources. They are handmade in Cumbria and you can find more information out on their website, mrvickys.co.uk. And if you want to order any, email info at mrvickys.co.uk or telephone 01768 210102. Big thanks to Blowhole Brewery, a new beer uh, made on Tyneside. The cans are all designed in the colours of Newcastle United strips from days gone by. Black and white there, the purple and blue, and the good old-fashioned blue from the entertainers' days. But get more information on the Blowhole Brewery range, such as Geordie Juice from blowholebrewery.co.uk. Thanks to Media Arts for all the help with the technical side of things and video side of things. And thanks to qtechshop.co.uk the makers of pool tables and snooker tables in Walls and Newcastle, and the guys who do our website, nufcmatters.com. If you want to subscribe to the show, then all you need to do is click the subscribe button below. You can also hit the thumb up, which does us a favour, by liking the video, and click share to share to your social media, such as Twitter and Facebook. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and Spotify and the rest. And if you want to contribute to the show, Use the QR code. It takes you straight to the membership pack and you can join the channel. What do you get for your membership pack? You get a scarf, a cup, a pen and a membership card and entry into the monthly draw. You can also make a donation by hitting the dollar sign in the chat tonight. We also give you something for free if you subscribe to the show. To get your car sticker, email john at nufcmatters.com and he will post you one out. We also support the food bank on this show. And if you want to make a virtual donation to the food bank, then go to nufcfansfoodbank.co.uk and make a donation today. On our website, we've got lots of T-shirts, cups, pens, you name it, memorabilia, if you want to buy it and support the show. For Christmas, we have the Bruno Christmas Jumper, which is selling rather well. And we'll have the bobble hats, play like Almiron, Bruno's Magic, 
and Bruno's 39 and Joe Linton's J7. Get yourself to nufcmatters.com to buy them today. If you want to buy people a ticket for one of our events next year, we've got an evening with Steve Howie, which is Friday the 24th of February at the Tyneside Irish Centre. Tickets are £50 from nufcmatters.com or newcastlelegends.com. And you can also buy them on Woucher before Christmas. Get somebody a bargain and a nice Christmas present. Peter Beardsley is on on the 10th of February at St. Dom's Catholic Club in Newcastle. Tickets available direct from the venue. And for this one, Friday the 2nd of June next year at the Grand Hotel in Gosforth, 6.30 start. An evening with Rob Lee, Lee Clark and John Beresford. To book tickets, contact Natalie at healandtour.org.uk or visit their website, healandtour.org.uk forward slash events. If you're looking for a Christmas present and people like a book, then get yourself NME from the Bender Squad to the Gremlins or the last remaining copies of Black or White, No Grey Areas, Lee Clark's autobiography. And you can get them from www.badboysbooks.net. That's it, Santa's been. Um, <laughs> thanks for that, Ben. <laughs> Sorry I had to listen to them as well, viewers. Uh, twice, once is bad enough, but twice, dear me out. Thanks for putting up with that. Um, let's just go on to a couple of other questions that we got asked. Quick answer on this one from uh, Mr Anderson. Hi, does Ben have any news on Andre Santos? As I've read, Chelsea are close, and we have been linked with him for a while now. Yeah, Newcastle have been looking for more young Brazilians, but Chelsea very much the favourites here, especially after missing out on Endrick. I think as soon as he went to Real Madrid, which was always likely, Chelsea were intent on turning their attention to other targets. And they are front runners at the moment for that particular player. He's a Vasco da Gama with a market value probably of only about three or four million quid, but the actual money paid for the transfer is likely to be higher than that if you include things like add-ons and also future sell-ons as well. So it's important to understand at Chelsea that the new recruitment plan is to identify young players as well as those that can be thrown straight in. And Santos falls into the former. He's seen as somebody that they can coach and develop and as they build their multi-club model give pathways to and Newcastle are there in the sense that they've looked at the player but so are Liverpool and Manchester City as well so there's a fair few Premier League clubs that are looking here but I think the difference is that Chelsea as they proved with Chukwameka as well another young player that they signed from Aston Villa are very prepared to be fast and to meet valuations it's the same as well with Datra Fafana who's on the verge of signing for Chelsea as well. That's not, as I said before, been the Newcastle approach, which is why Chelsea might overpay for a young talent and get the deal done quickly. And that's what makes them front runners, whereas Newcastle are not going to pay significantly above market value for these type of players. And the reason for that, again, is because Newcastle have to pick and choose a bit more with their finances, but also with their squad. Whereas Chelsea's intent is to build a multi-club model. And I'm not saying PIF won't because we know that they've looked at other clubs, but Chelsea are moving faster. So if Chelsea feel that they've got partnerships, they've got minority investment, or they own clubs and can give these players pathways, they can sign them earlier and they can sign them in a higher volume 
without worrying about the pathways, without worrying about the quality of coaching, without worrying in select cases about visas and still feeling that they're cost effective. And if they work, they end up in Chelsea and as star players. And if they don't work, because they've still been bought for probably, I know Endrick was an exception, but under 15 million, usually under 10 million, then if it transpires they don't quite make it for Chelsea, you're still likely to get your money back or make a profit and you invest that back into the first team. So Chelsea and Newcastle are different models. And with Santos, it might actually be Chelsea's model that ends up allowing them to sign him because the player has confidence that he's going to have pathways and first team opportunities at network clubs that come earlier than if he signed for Newcastle. Okay, Simon Davies says, hoping that Ben's got some snippets on transfers. He says, I noted ASM's comments on Thurham. He fits the bill big time in every way. So I'd like Ben's view on that. He says, if we can get uh, Isaac fit, we've got another goal threat. But does Ben see us signing Thurham or another goal threat in January? Yeah, Duran would be a brilliant signing. That's for sure. He's 25 years of age. He's broken into the France national team as well. Hasn't actually scored for France yet, but if you look at his numbers this season for Borussia Mönchengladbach, they're absolutely phenomenal. He's got 10 goals in the league. He's got 13 and 17 in all competitions. So clearly a goal scorer and somebody that adds a lot of hunger, energy, pace, and can probably even be converted into a slightly more versatile forward too. So he can either play on the left-hand side or he can play in a front three. But in more central areas, he has relished the opportunities to kind of lead the line a bit more. And that's led to uh, higher goal tallies. So if you look at his Bundesliga last season, he only scored three goals in all competitions. He's already got 13 now. Is a bit of a streaky player. That's the other thing I'd say. Anyone that's watched him in the Bundesliga since about 2019 will tell you that when he's at his best, he'll score game after game after game. He'll contribute game after game after game. But he can be a little bit absent at times. And he reminds me of Dembele in that respect, who's got phenomenal talent, lightning pace. But sometimes the decision-making isn't as consistent as it should be. So you have to learn when to be cutthroat and take it on you and be a poacher and when perhaps to be a bit more unselfish. And there's still some room for development there. But he's at a good age. And I also think within the market anyway, a pretty decent price as well. So I saw the comments by ASM and they were cheeky, obviously. I do think that there's an opportunity uh, because Borussia Mönchengladbach want to sell. But I'm not aware at this point that Newcastle have actually made an inquiry or started anything. And it's Manchester United that were the club that were really considering him in the build-up to the World Cup. And now, naturally, because Ronaldo has gone, they will need more goals too. Uh, they're also, ironically, looking at Ramos at Benfica, who was the forward that got the hat-trick when Cristiano Ronaldo was benched against Switzerland. So he could be a possibility as well. So I think Turam is one to watch only because... He's at that age where he might be tempted by a move and the price will be lower than some other targets. But at this point, there's not, other than ASM's flippant comments, there's not too much to this as far as Newcastle and Turam are concerned. Ashby is uh, another one that Ian's asking about, of course, the right back uh, at West Ham. West Ham fans are not happy about anybody getting a hold of him, especially Newcastle. But is that any further forward? 
yeah, I mean, great player and another type of um, signing that allows Newcastle to sort of forward plan in many ways. He's 21 years of age now, hasn't really had an opportunity at West Ham. I think he's only one Premier League appearance period since 2020. So this again is Dan Ashworth trying to work his magic and sign a young ace and see whether or not West Ham are prepared to sell. And um, I think we're going to have to wait and see on um, this one. I know everyone got very excited um, if you're a Newcastle fan and annoyed as a West Ham fan when it first broke. Um, and what I do understand is that there's no new contract yet at West Ham, which is the big thing that's causing alarm behind the scenes over there. And if you'd have spoken to me six months or so ago, I think West Ham were pretty confident on tying him down for the long run. And from West Ham's point of view, they absolutely think that he's one of the most talented players to come through their academy system in quite some time. Now he's out of contract in the summer of 2023. So West Ham are going to have to get moving. And clearly, if he doesn't um, sign a new deal, um, then you could either get him in January for a nominal fee or you could get him on a free transfer, which would be a massive, massive blow as far as West Ham are concerned. The danger for Newcastle um, and other clubs, and there are other clubs looking at him as well, uh, Atleti are one of them, actually. So it's not just Premier League clubs, but uh, the danger is just that all of this can be used as leverage. And it can be quite common for an agent to just tell the player to get on with things and not think about it and then just let a bit of time linger. And then, of course, the window opens and they get counter offers that they can take to West Ham to get the best possible deal. So I would say West Ham are going to do everything that they possibly can to get him to sign a new deal. But Newcastle are there for sure, uh, monitoring the situation and seeing what's possible. It's quite hard to move because if you put down an offer too early, you're worried it's just going to sit and be used as leverage with West Ham. And um, if you don't put down an offer, he could just sign a new deal. And then you're not going to get him in the short term. So it's about when to move in the market. And we'll have to wait and see on this one. I haven't made too many inquiries as to what might happen over the coming weeks. I've got to be honest. But uh, what I am told at the West Ham end is that they plan to do everything they possibly can to try and get the player to sign again uh, to ensure that he doesn't leave for a nominal fee or on a free transfer in the summer, because that would be a big blow from their perspective. Simon Davies will give him the last question. He says, Ben, do you think beating Leicester away on Boxing Day would set the tone for the running? Yeah, I mean, you're beating the best side in the Premier League. So, of course, it would set the tone. It's a very interesting fixture, though, because if we'd have flashed back maybe four weeks or so, a month or so before the World Cup break and Newcastle went away to Leicester, you'd have called them big favourites. But now you look at Leicester and uh, they've really picked up. Um, beat Milton Keynes 3-0, uh, looked sharp. Um, kept a clean sheet, beat West Ham away before the World Cup break, kept a clean sheet, looked sharp, beat Everton away, kept a clean sheet, looked sharp, unlucky losing to Manchester City at home. Uh, Yuri Tielemans nearly scored a wonder goal, but it was tipped onto the bar. 
uh, but they held their own. Thrashed Wolves away from home, kept a clean sheet, beat Leeds at home, kept a clean sheet, drew with Crystal Palace, not their best performance, but kept a clean sheet. So pretty much since the middle of October, Leicester are looking strong defensively. They don't have a ton of depth, but if everyone's fit, and now that there's a bit more of a feel-good factor and they've got a window to work with as well, they're a different side. And I'm not sure that Newcastle will relish the trip to the King Power Stadium. I think it will be very evenly matched. I think it will be quite an entertaining game. I think it will be quite a high-scoring game. And um, even though if you were a betting person, I'm sure Newcastle will actually be the favourites, which to go away at Leicester... Um, given what Leicester have done in the previous few seasons and given where Newcastle were when the new ownership group came in, to go to the King Power Stadium and be favourites, mm-hmm. um, I think is a huge credit to how fast the club have transformed. And that is the mentality in the dressing room is we can go to Leicester and win. We can go to Leicester and boss the game. We can go to Leicester and score goals. But I'm not sure. Again, I say what I said before. I might be biased because I'm a Leicester fan, but... I think it's pretty even. Leicester at home versus an informed Newcastle side. Leicester keeping clean sheets versus a Newcastle side that have found their groove and have got a lot of goals in them. So I'm really intrigued to see how this pans out. But um, yeah, if Newcastle win and they stand a very realistic chance of doing so, uh, then you hit an eventuality where uh, they could hypothetically go above Manchester City. Uh, They can solidify their place in third. And, you know, the main aim is going to be to try and create a bit of a gap because the last thing Newcastle want to do is lose the first game back and then find that Manchester United and Tottenham and Liverpool win and Liverpool and Manchester United have got games in hand and you suddenly start thinking, well, if we do have a little wobble here, then we could go from third to seventh very quickly. If you win that first game, as I think I've said before, you then look at Newcastle's upcoming fixtures and you would expect them to beat Leeds United at home as well. And then suddenly it's a massive, massive game away at Arsenal. And Newcastle have been really good against the bigger sides in the Premier League this season. They've left unrewarded in games. Sometimes they uh, should have definitely got something away at Liverpool. And even though they lost the game, some would say they they could have won the game and they should have definitely got... Um, well, they did get something, but they could have got more against Manchester City in that 3-3 draw because they were 3-1 up in the game as well. So I think that the next three fixtures are key in tone setting, um, starting with Leicester. If you beat Leicester, I fully expect them to beat Leeds because they're so leaky defensively. Uh, you end the year with two wins. They might end the year um, even potentially in second place, but more importantly, they might end the year with a four or five point or six point gap between them and Manchester United. And then suddenly it's game on. So yeah, very important next uh, two games in particular. Uh, And then possibly a bit of a free hit away at Arsenal to um, uh, really show what they can do. And uh, if you think Leicester's a tone setter on Boxing Day, uh, then um, think what a win away at Arsenal would do in terms of making a statement on January the 3rd. I'm not going to ask you for a prediction, but I'm going to I'm going to agree with a sentiment from Roger. Have a good Christmas, Ben. Apart from Boxing Day, uh, have a good one, mate. Uh, thank you very much for coming on in 2022. We're looking forward to working with you again in 2023. Um, no shows, no live shows anyway next week, uh, but we'll get you back on in the new year. And uh, I will be picking your brains about 
the transfer window, mate. So look forward to that. Have a good Christmas. Yeah, have a good Christmas, everybody. And um, also a great new year and look forward to it. Take care, mate. Bye-bye. See ya. Thank you.